Welcome back to week three of this summer's teachings through the book of 2 Timothy on the Dayton Women in the Word podcast. Megan's lecture this week walks us through 2 Timothy chapter 1 verses 1 through 14. We hope this teaching is a blessing to you after your time studying the text this week. Welcome back to our study of 2 Timothy. My name is Megan Rund, and I'm humbled and honored to study God's Word with you. We've spent this last week diving into 2 Timothy chapter 1, both in personal study and in our groups. And now I have the privilege of sharing with you all that God has laid on my heart as I've studied today's passage. 2 Timothy is a book that is so full of sound advice given from a spiritual father to his spiritual son. But Paul is not just sending Timothy instructions on how to excel in his pastoral duties. When Paul writes this letter to Timothy, there's an urgency. Paul is imprisoned in Rome, and he is begging Timothy to come and see him before he is put to death by Nero. We actually don't know if Timothy made it to Roman time, And Paul writes to Timothy knowing that this may be his very last opportunity to communicate communicate with him. So what kinds of things would you say to your loved ones if you thought you might never see them again? And this is the perspective from which Paul writes to Timothy as he not only gives advice to a dearly loved disciple, but also passes the torch of ministry to Timothy. This letter is Paul's swan song. So as we study this book together over these remaining weeks, take careful note of Paul's mindset. What are the things consuming his thoughts as he faces certain death? I think that when we look from this perspective, we will see a man who is not focused on his own circumstances, but one who trusts that he is right where God wants him. He has a vision that is beyond his own life and impact, and even beyond Timothy's. His heart is fixed on one thing, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached and carried from generation to generation to the ends of the earth. Can the same be said about us? Let's start with prayer. Father, thank you for the amazing privilege of opening your word together today, of studying together. And your word tells us that the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. So Father, we are united in purpose right now. We're studying your word together, and we are asking that you would fill our hearts with truth and fill our minds with understanding. May your name be glorified in our hearts and our homes today. Amen. So today we will begin looking at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. And as we read, we will be encountering several of the main themes that Laura taught on last week. So some of the themes that we're going to see are remember your call, guard the good deposit, take heart, do not fear, do not be ashamed, and share in suffering. So keep an eye out for these, and you might want to mark your scripture printout when you see them. You could even color code them if you're into that kind of thing. I have all the pens, all the colors. Um, So we'll be approaching today's text in three sections, and each section will have its own main truth that we'll discover together. Here are the sections. Section one, verses one through four, is the introduction, greeting, and thanksgiving. 
Section two, verses five through seven, remember God's gifts. Section three, verses eight through 14, persevere and serve without shame. Let's start by reading today's scripture aloud, and I want to encourage you to read God's word aloud when you study, because there is such power in speaking God's word aloud. So please open your Bibles or your printed copy of the text, and let's read together. As hard as it is for us to not be able to be physically together for this study, one of the benefits is that you could just pause me and turn to all the passages and cross-references in your Bible as we study. So let's start with 2 Timothy 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus." who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that there he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Well, we've spent some time studying the context and the themes found in 2 Timothy, and honestly, we could have spent so much more, because in my opinion, you cannot overstudy the context, and here's why. If I were to dig out an old, handwritten letter that my grandpa wrote to my grandmother during World War II before they were married, you and I could both have a good understanding of what he wrote on those pages just from reading it. But it would carry such greater depth of meaning for me than it would for you simply because of my knowledge of the man who wrote it and the woman who was meant to receive it. For example, Everything he wrote to her about his daily life in the Air Force would already carry more weight for me than for you, because unless you know the context of his enlistment, you aren't aware that he was so determined to serve his country, he refused to let his horrible eyesight cause him to flunk his physical. So he memorized the eye chart and cheated so he could pass the eye exam and serve his country. 
Now, the same is true about the context of Paul's second letter to Timothy, and even more so. When we read the pastoral letters, First and Second Timothy and Titus, we are given an intimate view, not only of the information Paul wants to pass along to his recipients, but of the very relationships between them. And our understanding is made more deep, more rich, by learning as much as we can about the context and the themes that these letters are written in. And what is rare and so exciting with 2 Timothy is that we have entire books of the Bible that serve as context, 1 Timothy and Ephesians, and large sections of the book of Acts as well. And 1 Timothy and Ephesians really are prequels to 2 Timothy, and I'm so glad that we've spent some time together taking a look at what these other epistles tell us as we dig into the first chapter of 2 Timothy. Paul begins this letter as he does with every one of his letters that we find in the Bible with a greeting. And I would encourage you all, if you haven't already, to take a few minutes looking at each of Paul's letters and the greetings that he offers there. When you do, you'll find many similarities between them. So in verse 1, Paul tells us his name and then his identity, Apostle of Christ Jesus. Then he gives us his justification or his credentials. Paul is not an apostle because he's a well-educated Jew who happens to be a Roman citizen or because he likes to go on long walks and doesn't mind a shipwreck here or there. He is an apostle of Christ by God's will, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. He didn't choose this office, and he didn't work for it. God chose him. Acts 9.15 tells us that God said Paul was his chosen instrument to proclaim his name to the Gentiles, their kings, and the people of Israel. And this is why we should listen to Paul. It's an account of the genealogy of his authority and why he is allowed to pass that authority to others, including Timothy. And next week in chapter 2, we'll also see that Paul instructs Timothy to pass that authority to others, just as Paul is doing with Timothy now. In verse 2, Paul identifies Timothy as the intended recipient of the letter and offers a blessing to him. In the same way that Paul gives us more than just his name, that we are, Paul qualifies Timothy as his beloved child. In this greeting in 1 Timothy, Paul refers to Timothy, uh, in his greeting in 1 Timothy, Paul refers to Timothy as his true child in the faith. In Philippians 2.22, Paul says that Timothy has served him in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Now, to add some perspective on what that relationship looked like, tradition holds that Paul was born in 5 AD and Timothy in 17 AD, making him only 11 to 12 years younger than Paul. And you guys have a timeline in your uh, packet that you receive from us, so you can take a deeper look into that timeline as well. But this would mean that Timothy, when he joined Paul on his second missionary journey, was about 34 years old. And Paul would have been about 46. And at the time that this letter was written to Timothy, he would have been about 49, and Paul would have been about 60. Now, Paul calls him beloved child. And the Greek used here, the word for child, technon, denotes one who is dear to another, but without genetic relationship and without distinction of age. A spiritual child in relation to master, apostle, or teacher. 
And this highlights an important point for us. When it comes to spiritual parents, there is no arbitrary line when we are finally old enough to be one. And there will never come a day when we are too old to benefit from having one. In verses 3 and 4, Paul offers thanksgiving. He is thankful for Timothy and is constantly in prayer for him. This man who is chained up in a dark, cold prison cell, soon to be executed for his faith, is thankful to the God he still serves with everything he has. Paul also tells Timothy that he serves the same God as his ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And a few verses from now, he'll encourage Timothy to do likewise and carry on the faith that was passed down to him. Are you picking up on a theme here? For a parent, what are the kinds of things that are left in a will to be passed down to the children? Well, it's not mom's favorite mop or dad's smelly old slippers with a hole in the toe. It's the things that matter the most, the things we value the most, and not necessarily the most expensive, that have the most meaning. These are the things we pass from generation to generation. And for spiritual parents, the single most important thing we can pass on is our faith. So here's our main truth for the first section. Christians are called to spiritual parenthood. Paul is setting an excellent example for us as spiritual parents here in the beginning of 2 Timothy. In these opening verses, he offers blessing, encouragement, and constant prayers for Timothy. Has God gifted you with a spiritual child, someone he has placed on your heart to teach and encourage? If not, will you pray and ask him to show you who needs your love and encouragement? And if so, how are you working to encourage her? Are you constantly in prayer for her as Paul was for Timothy? Paul also writes in Titus 2 that older women are to be spiritual mothers for the younger women in the church, setting an example in the way that they live and teaching and encouraging the younger women to love their husbands and children and to live faithfully. Now, this is not a suggestion for us. It is a command As believers, we are called by God to live in community with one another. But this is not just a call for traditional moms. In her book, Missional Motherhood, Gloria Furman says this, Mothering or nurturing is not just a call for women who have biological or adopted children. Mothering is a call for all women. Every Christian woman is called to the spiritual motherhood of making disciples of all nations. Spiritual children are not a burden, but a source of great joy, as Paul demonstrates for us. Do you believe that God can bring blessing and not burden to your life through this kind of relationship? Well, moving on to section two. Imagine with me for a minute the heart with which Paul is writing to his spiritual son, Timothy. They have spent so many years together and traveled thousands of miles together on foot and by sea, ministering to fledgling churches together, running from angry mobs together, and maybe even sewing tents together. Paul brought Timothy with him and has invested untold hours into teaching and mentoring him. 
They have shared sleepless nights under the stars as wolves howl a little too close for comfort. They have trusted their heavenly father to provide safety in their travels and food to sustain them even when they've run out of money. Paul trusts Timothy to take charge of the largest Christian church in Asia, in Ephesus. And through it all, Timothy has trusted Paul in every way. And while the text doesn't explicitly tell us, we can infer that in this final correspondence with his dearly loved spiritual son, Paul would be directly addressing the chronic fears and insecurities that Timothy has expressed over the many years that they've known each other. And what might Timothy have communicated to Paul in their years together and in letters as he presides over the church at Ephesus? Is Timothy despondent over Paul's imprisonment? Is he doubting his calling or his ability as he knows Paul's death is imminent and he faces the task of leading the church without his beloved mentor? I want us to look again at verses 5 through 7 with these things in mind. It says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Paul is reassuring Timothy that his faith is real. He encourages him to remember the genealogy of his faith. It started long before Timothy knew Paul, and it will survive long after he is gone. It began as Timothy sat at the feet of his mother and grandmother, listening to the stories of the patriarchs in the Old Testament, hearing the story of the exodus of Israel in exile, of the promise of a coming king, a savior. And before they heard the gospel preached by Paul, Lois and Eunice were devout Jews who faithfully followed God, the God of their ancestors, and taught Timothy to know and love him too. And Paul, this apostle of incredible faith and fortitude, is telling Timothy that he is confident in his sincere faith that has been growing in him since childhood. Have you ever gone to a trusted friend or spiritual mentor and confided in them that you aren't sure if your faith is real? I have. And based on what we know about Timothy and Paul's closeness, I would guess that Timothy shared his insecurities with Paul. What an encouragement for Timothy to read these words of trust from the man he loves and respects so deeply. Shortly after my husband and I were married, we began attending a new church. We didn't know anyone there, but they were well known in the community for putting on excellent musicals. I had never been in a musical before, but I have a background in singing, so I thought I'd audition and just be a part of the chorus because it would be a great way to get to know people in our new congregation. Well, to my utter surprise, I was actually cast in a named role that summer, and the following two summers, to my shock and horror, I was cast as the lead female. Now, the thing about musicals is they're not just about singing. You're also expected to act and dance, two things I had little experience with and far less talent for. But our director, a woman who was known for demanding excellence, saw things in me that I couldn't see in myself. She was like that, always seeing the potential in people and drawing the very best out of them. I wanted to be the performer she believed I could be, 
And her belief in me gave me confidence and strength to do things I never thought I could. And maybe this is true of Paul and Timothy too. The people we look up to can have such incredible impact on us when they invest in us and encourage us to become who they believe we can be and who God calls us to be. So let's look at another aspect of verse 5. We know from Acts 16 that Timothy's father was Greek, and there's no mention of his faith. But here we get an incredible picture of the origins of Timothy's faith. Both his Jewish grandmother and mother are women of strong faith. Women of God, hear me. Passing our faith on to future generations is perhaps our highest calling as women. God has created us as women in his image to be uniquely qualified as nurturers and caregivers, and that role must never be downplayed or undervalued. Barna Research did a study in 2018 to quantify the influence of moms in Christian households, and here's what they found. Practicing Christians in their teen years consistently identify mothers as the ones who provide spiritual guidance and instruction and instill the values and disciplines of their faith in the household. Moms are the foremost partners in prayer and conversations about God, the Bible, or other faith questions. This is consistent with Barna data through the years that show mothers to be the managers of faith formation. Now, if you're a mom, your primary mission field is your home. And the impact you can have is not just generational, it's eternal. Timothy's mother and grandmother are excellent examples of this. And it is the memory of them, the memory of their faith, that Paul is using here to stir up Timothy's faith and his resolve. So now, because of this sincere faith that Paul is confident he sees in him, Paul is now reminding Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God. Paul ordained Timothy for the ministry, and in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, we learn it was because of the urging of the Holy Spirit through prophecy, and that it wasn't just Paul, but a council of elders that laid on hands. The fact that Paul is reminding Timothy tells us that this is not the first time this topic has been discussed. Paul's choice of words here, fan into flame, tells us that Timothy is likely in a season that I know I have found myself in many times. The flicker is there, that precarious time in the life of a fire when it is in danger of being snuffed out. The long-burning embers of faith are still there, And now, it's time to add another log and bring that fire to blazing life. At the moment we confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us. But we must continually yield to it, fanning its flame in our hearts as we continue to do the will of the one who saved us. And for Timothy... He faces a challenging future that will require him to continually lean on the strength of the saving and sustaining power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But how can Timothy do this? How can he find the confidence to do what Paul is asking him to do? Verse 7 tells us, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, 
This fear you have, Timothy, it's not from God, but of power and love and self-control. Take heart, Timothy. You don't have to let fear control your steps. You don't have to shrink from your duty because you're afraid of what others will think or because there's opposition to your work. And neither do we, because we serve a God who gives us everything we need to accomplish all that he asks. Paul wants Timothy to know that it is God alone who has equipped him to do these things. The faith he has received from his mother and grandmother and the gift of God he received. So what is that gift? It is both the calling and all that is needed to accomplish it. Now, you might have heard verse 7 quoted before. It's one of those verses that believers use to stir up confidence, to quell fear. And that's exactly why Paul is speaking it to Timothy here. We may recognize love and self-control as gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit Paul describes for us in Galatians. But power isn't listed as a fruit of the Spirit, so how does it fit with these other two? Well, I think this is often overlooked and it's so encouraging because when Paul says that God gave him and Timothy a spirit of power, he isn't talking about a general power or a general strength, which is the context that we usually see this verse used in. It's not just this random power that we're supposed to have as believers. It's not that we've been made powerful. The Greek word used for power is dynamis, And this is where we get the English words dynamite and dynamo, dynamic, and it means capability with an emphasis on function. So Paul is not saying that we will be powerful in everything we do or approach simply because we have the Spirit of God in us, but he is saying that God gives us the capability to do, the ability to do what he has called us to. As Paul prepares Timothy emotionally and spiritually to continue leading the church at Ephesus after he's gone, he wants Timothy to know without a shadow of a doubt that it is not by his own strength that he is expected to succeed. It is only by the power and love and self-control that come from the Holy Spirit. Now, dynamite is incredibly powerful stuff, and it can be used for many different things. The one who places the dynamite does it in such a way that when it does its job, it will accomplish a very specific purpose. But the power in that dynamite to perform according to its purpose is only potential power. It must be activated by a flame. In the same way, Paul is inspiring Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God that is in him because when he does, He will take all that potential power, the capability he has been given to do the work, and he will use it to accomplish God's purpose in his life and ministry. And this brings us to our main truth for this second section. God has already given us all we need to accomplish the work he calls us to do. It's so easy to become overwhelmed with life and forget all that God has already done. Sometimes it takes the perspective of someone we look up to to help us see more clearly. Timothy needed Paul to remind him of the foundation of his faith, who he really was, where he came from, and all that he was capable of through the gift of the Spirit. Timothy's life was facing a turning point. 
He was about to lose his spiritual father, and it may have been hard for him to imagine what life would look like after Paul was gone. And it's hard for us, too, sometimes to see a way forward when we're in the midst of a crisis. But even when we can't see a way forward, we can remember all that God has already done for us and know that he has given us everything we need to do what he asks. Have you let your flame grow dim? What is God asking you to do now, today, to fan that flame? What gifts has God given you that will enable you to endure your current circumstances? Sometimes it's hard for us to recognize these gifts in ourselves, and it might be helpful to ask a trusted friend or a mentor what gifts they see in you. And likewise, you might want to take some time to let a fellow believer know what gifts you see in her, what a blessing that would be for her to hear. So how has God already prepared you for the tasks at hand? If you struggle to believe that he is faithful to complete the good works that he has begun in you, take a moment now to confess and ask for his help. Let's move into section three. Now Paul has reminded Timothy that he is set apart for ministry and that he has been given all he needs for that ministry. And Paul is now going to point Timothy to the resources he has in Christ that enable him to persevere through the suffering that certainly lies ahead for him and to serve without shame. Verse 8 begins, Therefore, and whenever we see those connecting words in Scripture, therefore, in the same way, likewise, these are clues that tell us to look at what has just been said. So Paul is referring back to what he has just finished saying, because you have been given a spirit of not a spirit a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control, you should not be ashamed of Christ or of the cross or of me. And in addition to not being ashamed, the power of God enables you, Timothy, to share in suffering for the gospel. Now, this is the first place we see the major themes of shame and suffering. Shame is a big deal in the Greco-Roman culture that Timothy grew up in, and in Ephesus, where he labors for the gospel. We know that Paul was a tent maker, and he worked with his hands, and that was a sign of weakness, of foolishness, and failure. He was not wealthy, and now Paul is in literal chains in prison for preaching the gospel. The cross that Paul preached was also culturally shameful. To Jews, it was a sign of judgment from God, and to the Greeks, it was just absolute weakness. So a life of cross-based ministry brought shame in the eyes of so many. But Paul refuses to accept it, and he implores Timothy not to give in to the shame culture because this compromises the message of the gospel. As Americans, we're aware of the honor-shame focus in Eastern cultures, but I think sometimes we don't recognize it here because on the surface, it doesn't seem as extreme. But our culture today is telling us that if we don't agree with the mainstream, we don't fit. There's something wrong with us. So Paul is encouraging us here not just to let go of fear, but to refuse to give in to the shame-based culture Because as believers, we are called to stand up for sound doctrine and godly behavior. And Paul is up front with Timothy. There will be suffering. It's part of the mission and part of the ministry. 
And Jesus says in John chapter 15, verses 19 through 21, as he's speaking to the disciples, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I have said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Now what follows in verses 9 through 10 of 2 Timothy is an impassioned summary of God's entire plan for redemption and the reason that Timothy should not be ashamed to serve and share in suffering. Beginning in verse 9, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. In other words, Timothy, there is nothing you have done to earn this calling, and likewise, nothing you can do to lose it. It is not by our works that we have been saved. It is by the purpose and grace of God, and it was his plan before time began. Verse 10, and which now has been made known, and the Greek is actually better translated as widely known, through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus didn't just get rid of the bad. He replaced it with good. He abolished death and brought life and immortality through the gospel. What is that gospel? Literally, it's good news. It's the good news. The life-altering news that the God who purposely knit you together in your mother's womb loved you so desperately that he sacrificed his only son, his perfect son without stain or sin, to suffer and die at the hands of the very ones he came to save. And he took your place and the suffering and condemnation you deserve He took it all on himself, and he offers to you no strings attached to replace it with his perfect righteousness. He doesn't just take away the bad. He replaces it with good. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is the foundation of everything in Scripture, everything in the Christian faith, and it is the reason that Paul is writing to Timothy. No matter what comes at him, Timothy must remember the gospel. Read it, rest in it, guard it, find purpose and strength in it, preach it to others, suffer for it. And if Timothy is going to move forward in the power of the Holy Spirit, he needs to take hold of the promises of life, of eternal life in Christ. Because the nerve and the fortitude and the boldness that Timothy needs to face the trials ahead, including this journey to Rome that Paul is asking him to go on, will never be found inside of him. The strength to carry the cross is found in Christ alone. Now, what should we do with that? What does it mean for us? Well, let's look at verse 11. The gospel is why I was appointed a preacher, apostle, and teacher. It is why I suffer as I do. 
Paul wants Timothy to remember that everything he has done, all he has become, and all the suffering he has endured, it's all for the sake of the gospel. In verses five through seven, Paul said Timothy's faith was both the foundation and the means of his calling. And here he tells Timothy that his own faith is the foundation and reason for his life and his mission. For Paul, there is no distinction between his life and his work. He doesn't clock out of tent making and go preach on the nearest street corner. Every part of his life is wrapped up in his mission. They cannot be separated. Can the same be said of us? In verse 12, Paul reminds Timothy that his suffering is a direct result of his appointed calling, but he is not ashamed. He says, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Such certainty of identity, such singularity of purpose are wrapped up in this verse. Paul is living his last days cold, abandoned, outcast, and there is not a shred of doubt that God is who he says he is, and he does what he says he will do. Oh, how Paul's certainty must have stirred up confidence in Timothy. Throughout this letter to Timothy, we can see over and over, Paul never asks something of Timothy that he cannot show evidence of in his own life. Paul tells Timothy not to be ashamed and that he himself is not ashamed. Paul reminds Timothy of his suffering for the sake of the gospel and instructs Timothy to share in that suffering. Paul tells Timothy not to be afraid and then tells him why he is not afraid. In the weeks to come, we will see Paul instruct Timothy to entrust these teachings to faithful men, which is what Paul has done in teaching Timothy, Titus, and so many others. Everything this spiritual father is asking of his spiritual son, he is modeling. And we must always remember that our Heavenly Father will never ask anything of us that he didn't also ask of his Son. This Jesus, who became man and is our perfect model. Dear sisters, we must never underestimate the impact of how we live our lives. In verse 13, Paul instructs Timothy to follow this pattern he has modeled, the pattern of the sound words you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, not by your own power, Timothy. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Follow the pattern of sound words. Back in verse 11, Paul said he was appointed by God to work for the gospel. What roles was he given? Preacher or herald, apostle and teacher. And Paul's saying he's been appointed to take the message of the gospel, teach it in Christian assemblies and declare it publicly wherever he goes. He was appointed to speak what had been spoken to him. And now Paul is passing the baton of ministry to Timothy. And this is an important point. Paul is not asking Timothy to innovate. Paul's not telling him to put his own spin on what he has heard. This is a trust, a stewardship. Paul is saying, what has been entrusted to me, I am entrusting to you. In chapter 2, Paul will ask Timothy to continue the trust with others who will also be good stewards of the apostolic doctrine. 
Timothy's job is not to add to it or take away from it. His job is to pass it on. And as women who have been blessed to hear the gospel message, that's our job too. Paul has finished telling Timothy that he is confident that God will guard what has been entrusted to him, the good deposit. And now he implores Timothy to trust him to guard the good deposit entrusted to him. Now there's still debate over what Paul means by good deposit. Some believe that Paul is referring to the gospel and others think it encompasses more than the gospel. But here's my take on it. That good deposit began with Timothy's mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. I believe it is his faith and the finished work of the crucified and resurrected Christ. The gift of God that is in Timothy through prophecy and the laying on of hands. The time, love, and teaching that Paul has given to him. Like the contents in a kind of safe deposit box in Timothy's life, that have been multiplying and growing more valuable over time. And regardless of interpretation, we can be sure that the good deposit is precious. It must be kept safe from the disappointment and shame and false teaching and every attempt of the enemy to steal and destroy. Our Heavenly Father has made a good deposit in each of us. And as Jesus illustrates in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, we are responsible for using that deposit for his glory to accomplish what he has called us to do. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do it without fear or shame. And this brings us to our final main truth. Christ's victory over the grave means we can persevere in suffering and serve without shame. So much of our current culture is built around the concept of shame. We are shamed into believing we must wear makeup to cover our supposed faults. We are shamed into believing our God-given bodies are not beautiful because they are not perfect. Many of us have been rejected even in small ways when we've shared our faith with others. Jesus himself was rejected by those who should have known him best, people who instead sent him to the cross because he forced them to confront their own sin. They thought the cross would be a source of shame for those who believed in him, but they were wrong. Jesus' resurrection turned a symbol of shame into a symbol of eternal love and victory. Hebrews 12.2 says this, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There was no shame in the cross for Christ, and there is no shame for us in following him and publicly proclaiming the gospel. The gospel. So do you, like Paul, find your confidence in Christ? Or do you struggle with fear and shame when it comes to proclaiming the truth of the gospel to friends and family? Will you pray and ask God to show you that as a follower of Christ, you serve an audience of one? We can serve God without shame because it is God himself who has appointed us to carry forth this message of truth. Well, I think when we look at today's entire passage, when we, like Paul, remember all that God has given to us, we are strengthened to do the work he has called us to do, despite persecution without shame, and pass it on to the generations to come. 
Now, the call to remember is so prevalent here in Paul's final letter that I can't help but think about another swan song that we find in Scripture, the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy was written by Moses at the end of his life. He had just, just, he had spent 40 years bringing the children of Israel through the wilderness, and they were now on the cusp of walking into this land that had been promised to them by God. But God had already told Moses that he wasn't going to get to see it. He wasn't going to get to go in. And so he knew this was his last chance to give these instructions to his people, to tell them what they needed to hear. And he knew that they were going to face trials when they walked into that land. He wanted them to have something to look back on, and he wanted to prepare them for what lied ahead. And when we read Deuteronomy, we see repeatedly these calls to remember. He wants the Israelites to remember all that God has given them. He wants them to remember that God gave them manna when there was no food, that God made water come from rocks when there was nothing to drink. Remember that God protected you, that he led you every step of the way. Remember. And then when we see Joshua leading the children of Israel into the promised land, God does this amazing thing. You know, when they left Egypt, God parted the Red Sea. And now, as they leave the wilderness, God parts the Jordan River for them to walk through. It's like a bookend of perfection for them to remember. So the waters part, and everyone is walking through, and they get through, and God says, you know what, Joshua, I want you to tell one member from each of the 12 tribes to go back in the, in the riverbed, in the dry riverbed, and pick up a rock and bring it to the shore and build a monument because when your children ask you, what are these rocks for? You can tell them about me and you can tell them about all that I've done for you. So sisters, we are called to remember And Paul remembers, he remembers everything that God has called him to do, every big moment, every small moment, every moment of provision, of gifts, God has given him to persevere and to complete the work that he has been given. And he wants Timothy to remember, because Paul knows that those memories will comfort him and inspire him and strengthen him. And we need to remember too, because as Ralph Waldo Emerson said, All I have seen teaches me to trust the creator for all I have not seen. Let's pray. God, you are the giver of all good gifts. And even in the darkest moments, you are with us. And you have given us so much to hold on to in those moments. You've given us so much to remember. All you've done in redemptive history and all you've done in our history. So help us to remember and rejoice as we look to you for everything we need to do all you ask. Amen. This coming week, we'll be studying 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, through chapter 2, verse 13. And as you study, we want to encourage you to compare different translations of the text to enrich your study time. And definitely take the time to watch the At Home in the Word video on our website about comparing translations to learn about how different translations use different methods to bring God's Word to our native language. And may God bless you this week as you study. Thanks for tuning in today. Here on the Dayton Women in the Word podcast, 
you can listen to this summer's teachers throughout the remainder of our study, with a new lecture being released every Wednesday. All resources for summer study can be found on our website, DaytonWomenInTheWord.com slash 2-Timothy-Resources. Visit our Week 4 resource page for more details about the coming week's study. Grace be with you.